everyone. I'm Laura Ellsworth, welcoming you to Prairie Doc Radio. This is a program of the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Dr. Rick Holm. We are here to answer your medical questions, so give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. With us today is Dr. Deb Johnston to answer your medical questions. Dr. Johnston's specialty is family medicine. She works with the Avera Medical Group Brookings and volunteers as part of the Prairie Doc team of physicians. Good morning, Dr. Johnston. Good morning. It's so great to be here this morning with both of you. So, and you know, just before the introduction here, we were chatting about our summer plans. Mm -hmm. And it is just so absolutely wonderful that life is getting back to normal. We're able to do some of those things that we, we gave up last year. Um, but I think it, it raises an interesting question for a lot of people. You know, what can I do? Mm-hmm. What can I do now? What is safe? Um, and I, I think if people have questions about that or suggestions or thoughts, why don't you give us a call? And yeah. we, can, we can talk about everybody's summer plans. That would be a fun conversation for today. One of the things we were talking about was some outdoor activities. Mm-hmm. And um, Laura and her family have some, uh, some wonderful, exciting summer plans yeah. that will mostly involve outdoor activities. And yes. outdoor activities are a great choice. So camping, mm-hmm. hiking, um, visiting national parks and other Um, outdoor things is a great opportunity a great option for this summer that you can be pretty confident will be pretty safe especially because there are people that aren't eligible for vaccination yet and Mm -hmm. your children are young enough not to be eligible correct right yeah Yeah. our oldest turns 12 in august so we're waiting for that (laughs) and then he can get his shot so yeah i i was teasing my daughter who's only 15 i spent most of the spring telling her that for her 16th birthday i was going to sneak into her bedroom at at 1201 and and give her a vaccine yes sadly you know a a mother's job is to torture her teenagers but sadly my daughter did not find that uh very torturous because she just could not wait to get that vaccine so Mm -hmm. uh, she has now been fully immunized um she got her second shot at the mass immunization event on june 9th so we are just waiting that one more week for it to be fully effective and then my whole family will be immunized so that certainly gives us a lot more um security than families where somebody has not been immunized Mm -hmm. so everybody everybody if you're 12 and older go out and get your shot yes yes it is so nice to be at to be in summer for one yes. thing is so nice and to be able to um, have a little more freedom. Um, our son Eli is playing baseball. So we had a yes. game last night. And so my parents came and my aunt and uncle were visiting from Oklahoma and we all had dinner together yes. in, our, in our house. And it was just so nice to just be together and not there. All the adults yep. are vaccinated. So just yep. to be a little more relaxed and have time together, I feel like um, it's been way too rare lately, so it, it's nice to it's, be able to do that. It certainly has, and it also helps that the numbers are falling, particularly here mm-hmm. um, in in our community and in South Dakota. Our numbers are 
are a lot lower, so it makes it a lot easier to to get out. And, you know, the vaccines are not perfect. So even those of us who have been vaccinated uh, need to be a little bit cautious about that. But, you know, if you're vaccinated and you're spending time with other people who are vaccinated, that's a pretty darn safe situation to be in. We took our family out to dinner for the first time Mm. graduation weekend. We have not done that in 18 months Mm -hmm. or, well, 15 months, I guess. But that was really a a wonderful thing. And my poor father-in-law was just beside himself with joy because he has not left the house except to go to go to the doctor since this all started. So he was so happy yes it's a it is so wonderful to be able to connect with people and get out and do those things that we love again well it's time for go for us to go to our first break we thank you for listening to prairie doc radio on kbrk and on our podcast our prairie doc topic for today is diabetes so if you have questions about that or if you want have questions about the COVID-19 vaccine or summer plans and all of that and you want to talk to us about that give us a call at 605 692-1430. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. It is important as we age to add strength training to aerobic exercises. These activities will help you build strength, maintain bone density, and improve balance, coordination, and mobility, and reduce the risk of falling so that you can stay independent and perform activities of daily life. Talk with your provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings about strength training and get started today. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth and Prairie Doc physician Deb Johnston is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call at 605-692-1430. We plan on spending some time talking about diabetes this next half hour. So if you have questions or comments about diabetes, give us a call. Uh, But before we dive into that, we are just reflecting on um, how nice it is to be have so many of us vaccinated that we're able to do some things again that we love to do. Um, Dr. Johnson, you had a great essay this week in the Brookings Register on Monday about vaccines and kind of the three different responses you get from patients when you talk to them about vaccines. Yes. Um, You know, a lot of people in South Dakota have gotten the vaccine, um, a little over 50%. Um, So when I talk to a lot of people, they've had their vaccine, and that's Mm -hmm. a, a wonderful thing, and we get to celebrate and talk a little about what we're looking forward to doing again and and how relieved we feel to have it. And then sometimes I, I run into people either who just are not vaccine people at all. They, they don't get much of any vaccine. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they are um, really skeptical about COVID-19 and they're just not interested in, in addressing that. But a lot of people are just kind of hesitant. You know, they're, they're not against vaccines in general. They're just really worried because this vaccine seemed to come out so quickly. And boy, do I ever understand that because I know at the very beginning when they told us that we might have a vaccine by the end of 2020, I thought that was an absolute pipe dream. I actually... There was a part of me that thought, you know, they're just, they're just holding that out there for us so that people 
don't throw up their hands and give up. They're just saying maybe that'll happen. And I just couldn't imagine that it could be that fast. And yet, mm-hmm. here it was by the end of 2020. Right. Um, I guess I, I should take that as a um, demonstration that there are people who have more knowledge than I do about <laughs> uh, the state of the art. And that's really what we saw with this. We saw uh, a couple of things. Number one, uh, what you can do if you put enough money at things. I like to say when I'm talking to my patients, you know, when you're building your house, there's that old saying you can have uh, fast, good, or cheap, but you can't have all three. You can Mm -hmm. have two of them. And this was, well, we did not pick cheap. Mm -hmm. We put a lot of money into this, both the companies and, and the governments. Um, and that certainly helps because they could they could do very large studies from the get-go. They didn't have to do a little at a time. They could um, do a study to show what the effect of the safety, then what the effective dose was, and then um, do the big study to see how effective it was. So they had um, all the money that they they needed when they needed that money, and that made a huge, huge difference. But probably the the biggest thing was the value of that basic scientific research. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, of, of talk about how revolutionary and new these mRNA vaccines are. And these were the first mRNA vaccines approved. But scientists have been working on that technology for 30 years. So it wasn't a new technology. It was just a technology that hadn't been used for this purpose before, but was ready to do it. So mm-hmm. they could start. They could start at the end, the last lap of the marathon or the Indy 500. They could start right there. They didn't have to start from the beginning, you know, to use that Indy 500 um, analogy. They didn't have to start by building the car. Mm-hmm. They could just start by you know, those last few laps, and uh, that made all the difference in the world Mm -hmm. for us. So we had um, a lot of research into coronaviruses because of the uh, SARS epidemic and the MERS epidemic um, that had, had happened previously, so scientists knew what a good target for the vaccine would be. Um, they had done research into how to stabilize mRNA so that we could get it into the cell where it could be used as a template to build that spike protein and not degrade it outside before it could ever get into the cell. Um, they had had worked on the concept of the vaccine for cancer therapies. They used that concept for cancer treatments or for investigational cancer treatments. So they were really just ready. As soon as those uh, researchers in China had released the DNA sequence of the coronavirus, they were ready to take that information, turn it into mRNA, and get started. So, you know, those those vaccines are new and they're revolutionary, and I fully predict that we will be seeing a lot more vaccines using that technology in the future. Um, but it it wasn't as fast as it looked to those of us from the outside. It's very, very exciting technology. Yeah. Well, if you missed Dr. Johnson's essay, you can find that in Monday's Brookings Register or online um, on our webpage at prairiedoc.org. I encourage you to check that out. It's a great one. 
Well, I did mention that our topic this week is diabetes. So if you have questions about that, give us a call at 605-692-1430. Recently, I've had a number of friends who've had some really scary situations with their kids before Mm. their child had a diagnosis of diabetes, some really terrible things happening. Um, How do we usually figure out that a child has diabetes? So... To back up just a little bit, um, well, and first off to say, hey, we'll talk about anything. Absolutely, yes. That's one of the great things about primary care doctors. We may not be the experts in in anything, but we know an awful lot about about a lot of things. So we like to call ourselves a specialty of breadth, not Mm. depth. So we know a little bit about a lot of things. Um, so, which is very valuable. It is very, very valuable. <laughs> so, yes. So, when we look at diabetes, there are kind of two basic types of diabetes, and uh, although this isn't strictly true, um, it can be useful to divide them into child-type diabetes and adult-type diabetes. And we're seeing a lot more overlap um, now, but. When we look at child-type diabetes, uh, which is usually, although not always, what we call type 1 diabetes, that is a condition where the pancreas is injured by the immune system and the pancreas stops producing insulin. And insulin is absolutely critical for allowing our body to use the sugar that we eat, that we produce, that we use for fuel. If we don't have insulin, we can't get that sugar into the cells and and bad things happen. So um, when you look at kids, most of the time when they're diagnosed with diabetes, it is because they have a lack of insulin and um, they get very sick very fast, very soon after the diagnosis uh, or after the development of the disease. The classic symptoms, um, you may see kids having weight loss. They may be wanting to drink water all the time. They may be going to the bathroom very frequently um, because their blood sugar is getting higher. They can't get it into the cells, um, and that causes loss of of fluid your kidneys try to help get that sugar down um, so along with the sugar water is pulled into the urine so those kids end up going to the bathroom a lot they end up drinking a lot of water um, and because they don't have that uh, sugar available to use in their cells they've got lots of it they just can't use it um, they end up Uh, feeling tired, being really sick. Eventually, uh, they will go into what we call ketoacidosis. And what that amounts to is that because they can't burn sugar, their body starts trying to burn proteins and will actually start trying to to use its own muscle, its own tissues in order to find an energy source that it can use. So, and then the the acid-base balance and the body gets off and, and those kids can get extremely, extremely critically ill. Um, so that is the, the type one, the insulin deficient, the child, usually child onset diabetes. Is there a certain age that it normally shows up 
or it, no it can be at any age it can be at any it age can be at any age and is it something you're born with or is it something that develops as you're growing it is, it is something that develops okay um, most autoimmune diseases are that way and type 1 diabetes is a condition where your immune system has for some reason identified your own tissue as something that shouldn't be there so your immune system starts attacking your own tissue um, so other types of autoimmune diseases, most thyroid diseases, mm -hmm. either low or, or high thyroid, under or overactive thyroid diseases, things like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, those are things that, that adults may be more familiar with. They may have family members or friends who've had those or have them themselves. And those are conditions, again, where your own immune system is damaging your own tissues um, so it is something that can develop at any time uh, as we get older although you can still have that situation where your immune system decides it doesn't like your pancreas your islet cells in your pancreas um, but we see more and more diabetes which is what we call type 2 diabetes which is not so much a condition where your immune system attacks your pancreas. It's a condition where your cells don't use that insulin as effectively. They can't get the sugar into your cells as effectively. Um, and it's what we call insulin resistance. So your, your cells need more insulin in order to keep your blood sugar where it's supposed to be um, because it's like a rusty lock and it's really hard to get that lock turned and to get that cell opened up to let the sugar in so there's lots of sugar floating around there's lots of insulin floating around at least until your pancreas starts wearing out um, so the effect is the same but the cause is different you have way too much sugar now people with type 2 diabetes are are unlikely to end up getting that ketoacidosis we were talking about a little bit ago um, simply because they've got lots of sugar they've got lots of insulin some of that sugar still gets into the cells so the cells are still able to use that sugar um, so they don't need to burn their own tissues and and go into ketoacidosis but uh, the long-term effects are very similar. Too much sugar, uh, it can cause injury to the eyes, uh, it can cause heart problems, it can cause kidney problems, it can cause circulation problems, it can cause problems with the nerves where people will get persistent pain and tingling and numbness and that can cause ulcerations in the feet and amputations. And it is a very important disease um, that we need to take seriously as a society and as a culture so people should be screened for diabetes it's not so useful in kids because it develops so quickly for them but in adults uh, it's usually a much slower process so we know that people with a big family history people who are overweight um, people women who've had menstrual cycle issues like polycystic ovaries or ha maybe had diabetes during their pregnancies um, there are certain things that put you at higher risk for diabetes everybody should be screened but people who are at higher risks should be screened more often so that we can identify it as early as possible 
and even better so that uh, we can make some changes and uh, reduce our risk of going on to develop diabetes in the first place. Well, we need to go to our next break, and when we return, let's talk about some of those ways we can manage that to prevent some of those things from developing. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. Call us now at 605-692-1430 with any medical questions you would like us to address. Prairie Doc programs are available as a podcast. Just look for Prairie Doc wherever you get your podcast. Today's program will be added to the podcast soon. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Shingles, also called herpes zoster, is a painful rash disease. Shingles can lead to severe nerve pain called postherpetic neuralgia that can last for months or years after the rash goes away. Shingles is caused by the varicella zoster virus, the same virus that causes chickenpox. If you've had chickenpox, you can get shingles. Almost one out of three people in the United States will develop shingles in their lifetime. You can get shingles at any age, but it's more common in older adults. Older adults also are more likely to have severe disease. The Center for Disease Control recommends that people age 50 and older get the shingles vaccine called Shingrex. Set an appointment to discuss shingles with your provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Prairie Doc physician Deb Johnston is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call at 605-692-1430. Before the break, we are talking about type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and we are just starting to talk about how important it is that once you have that diagnosis, we learn about how to manage um, that condition. So what are some of the recent technologies or developments that help with that? It, you know, I think managing diabetes is a really big challenge. Um, you know, there's a lot that your healthcare team can do to help with that, but it is probably the quintessential disease where you have to work every day in order to keep that disease under good control. It takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of attention, it just takes a lot of work, and a lot of money too, which mm. is, is a big barrier for a lot of people. So I, I wanna give a shout out to anyone who is dealing with diabetes and I, I know how hard it is and how much work it is. And one of the things we're asking people to do is some of the hardest things we ever ask people to do, and that's to change lifestyle, to change the way you eat, to change the way you move. Um, it can be really difficult. And there, there are some new medications, new from when I finished medical school at least, mm -hmm. that, that really have been very helpful for people. There's a, a once a week shot that can be really helpful. Um, we have, we, these were just starting to come out when I, when I was in medical school, but you know, it used to be that our insulins would, would peak some hours into the future. So people, ha if they needed insulin, people would have to predict 
when they were going to eat. So they had to, (laughs) Bob's giving me this look like, what? (laughs) And that, that was incredibly difficult. So the insulin you'd give yourself in the morning was supposed to, to help control your blood sugar over, over lunchtime. And, um, that the, you would usually give yourself two different types of insulin, which maybe you could do just in one shot. And the one type of insulin was supposed to help you at lunchtime and the other type of insulin was supposed to help you at dinner time and then you would give yourself a shot at dinner time and that was supposed to help you at bedtime and overnight but that the peaks and valleys of when that insulin would hit you does not necessarily correlate with when people wanted to eat and you were predicting how many carbs am I going to eat how much insulin do I need you had to be very very careful about what you ate and when you ate and uh, obviously life is just not that predictable Mm -hmm. for most of us so then we had newer forms of insulin and one of those forms of insulin is something that um, we use so commonly in people whether they are a type one the the quote-unquote child type diabetes where your pancreas is destroyed or the type 2s where you just get resistant to that insulin. Um, So that is an insulin that has a very long, slow onset. It doesn't really have a peak or a valley. It gives you a little insulin all the time, whether you're eating or exercising or sleeping. Um, And that has been revolutionary because now we didn't need to try to to predict what we would need kind of to carry us through Mm -hmm. the day. And then there is a almost instant acting insulin. It's not quite instant, but it's a lot more helpful. So people can um, sit down to their meal and give themselves their insulin look and say, oh, well, it looks like I'm getting about 15 carbs or 30 carbs or whatever I'm doing and make a judgment about how much insulin while that food's in front of them so that they don't have to be guessing when they'll be eating. And that obviously was was quite revolutionary. Obviously, it's also still work. You're having to, to make that calculation, do some math about how much you've got. Although, you know, for a lot of people, they're able to just say, well, I'm going to do about this much for a typical meal. So they don't have to get quite that detailed. Um, now we have insulin pumps Mm -hmm. and insulin pumps are a really revolutionary thing where instead of giving a shot periodically you have a little needle and a little little device that people wear that's full of insulin and it trickles that insulin in a little at a time Um, and then when you're going to eat or have a snack you can um, adjust and give yourself extra insulin with that and now they have continuous glucose monitors that you you wear constantly and it is constantly watching your blood sugar and you can use your your phone and communicate with that and find out what your sugar is and they've got they're developing a new technology that um, is is just coming onto the market at least to my knowledge um, where there's a feedback loop 
so the, the monitor will communicate with the pump and will make some automatic adjustments for you too. So it's, it's getting closer and closer all the time to a quote-unquote an artificial pancreas, and that's, that's super exciting, and that's particularly exciting for those type 1 diabetics, um, but it's also really exciting for those type 2 diabetics. A lot of the technologies that we have, a lot of the medications that we have um, are only for the type 2 diabetics. The type 1 diabetics need insulin. The other things just are not going to do what they need because their problem isn't so much that they're resistant to insulin, although over time they can become resistant to insulin too. They just don't have any insulin to use in the first place, and you do need that insulin. We haven't figured out how not to use insulin yet, so, and we probably won't. Our bodies are set up to use insulin. It's really fascinating that you can get the, these real-time reports like you were talking about, and I'm yes. sure, I'm guessing that a parent can see these real-time reports yep. as well on a phone or whatever, even if you're not with your child, so that has to give people peace of peace mind. Peace of mind, and, and the... Machines can be set up to send alerts. So they will send an alert, hey, your sugar is is getting low, or um, and they can send that alert to other people too. Okay. So if I'm out on in the tractor and um, my sugar's going low, uh, not only will it let me know, but it will let someone else know. Mm. So it, it you know that is one of the scary things about diabetes. If your sugar gets too low, that can be deadly. Mm-hmm. Just as it can be t- deadly if it's too high. Mm-hmm. Usually too high is deadly over the long run. Um, either for a type 1 going into that ketoacidosis or a type 2 just developing all those complications of diabetes, but too low can be deadly. Now, mm-hmm. so well, we had a great show earlier this year, a uh, television program on diabetes that you hosted, Doctor Justin, yes. and I just um, recently listened to it. I, I don't know if our listeners know this, but we, of course, watching the television program is wonderful. But we also have the other option now. We um, load the audio onto a podcast. So if you're more of a podcast person, you can listen to the television show. So that's what I recently did with this diabetes show, and it was really fabulous. It was. Those two gentlemen were just amazing, just, you know, very, very personable, very, very knowledgeable, just great educators. So yes. uh, definitely give it a listen or watch it yeah. this evening or tomorrow, tomorrow evening. night. That's right. There's a rerun on South Dakota Public Television at 7 p.m. That's right. Exactly. And those um, guest physicians were Dr. Richard Crawford of Avera Medical Group Endocrinology and Diabetes in Sioux Falls and Dr. John Palmer of Monument Health in Rapid City. So learn more from them on SDPB tomorrow night, or you can always search for our podcast, um, just search for Prairie Doc. We hope you've enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program, and we'll listen again for Prairie Doc on KBRK, brought to you by the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube. For free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc library, visit www.prairiedoc.org. And look for Prairie Doc wherever you find your podcast. My thanks to Dr. Deb Johnston for joining us today. And as Dr. Holm would say, 
stay healthy out there, people. 